Thanks for listening to the podcast from River's Edge Church in Spokane, Washington. For more information or to gather with us on Sunday, visit our website at respokane.org. We hope this message is impactful for you and others as we pursue the way of Jesus together. Uh, Good morning, everyone. Great to be with you this morning. Uh, We are continuing in the uh, sort of mini-series that we started last week, which we're calling Prophets and Kings, uh, in which we're taking a couple weeks to examine uh, Israel as a nation. Uh, What was, uh, how did Israel come about? What was Israel's purpose? How did her story unfold? What's the significance uh, of Israel in the biblical storyline? And so we're going to pick up in just a moment in Israel, Gen, no, sorry, Exodus. Exodus 11. I'm so used to going to Genesis. Wow. Exodus 11, verse 1. So if you have a Bible or a Bible app, feel free to turn there. And uh, as you're turning there, I've asked Stephen to uh, pray for our time this morning. Yeah, so real quick, uh, as I was driving here this morning, I just felt like God was pressing on me and saying, like, be in anticipation. You know, like, just seek out my presence and anticipate my every move. So I would just like to, to pray a blessing over you guys in that. So, Holy Spirit, we, uh, we thank you for your presence. We thank you for being in this place, Lord, and we anticipate your every move, your every blessing in our lives, Lord. We know that you love us so much, Lord, and we anticipate you moving in our lives, Lord. Thank you for what you're doing in us, And in this place, Lord, in your name, amen. Amen. Thanks, Stephen. If you were with us last week, uh, you'll remember that we examined the Exodus, uh, which was uh, God's liberation of Israel from their uh, slavery in Egypt. And in order to free them, God brought about 10 uh, escalating calamities or plagues, as we often call them. They were these uh, events of judgment uh, on Pharaoh and the slave driver nation of Egypt. And yet, Pharaoh, time and time again, one after the next, refuses to let Israel go. He's determined to keep them in slavery. And so God uh, brings gnats and flies and boils and he kills their livestock. And each and every time, uh, Pharaoh refuses to let them go. Uh, And that brings us to what I want to focus in on today, which is the 10th and final plague or calamity that God brings on the oppressive slave driver that is Egypt. Uh, We pick up in Exodus 11, Verse 1, here's what it says. Now the Lord had said to Moses, I will bring one more plague on Pharaoh and on Egypt. After that, he will let you go from here. And when he does, he will drive you out or release you completely. Tell the people that men and women alike are to ask their neighbors for articles of silver and gold. The Lord made the Egyptians favorably disposed toward the people. And Moses himself was highly regarded in Egypt by Pharaoh's own officials and by the people. And so Moses said, This is what the Lord says. About midnight I will go throughout Egypt. Every firstborn son in Egypt will die. From the firstborn son of Pharaoh who sits on the throne to the firstborn son of the female slave who is at her handmill, and all the firstborn of the cattle as well. There will be loud wailing throughout Egypt, worse than there has ever been or will ever be again. 
But among the Israelites, not a dog will bark at any person or animal. Then you will know that the Lord makes a distinction between Egypt and Israel. All these officials of yours will come to me, bowing down before me and saying, Go, you and all your people who follow you. And after that, I will leave. Then Moses, hot with anger, left Pharaoh. The Lord had said to Moses, Pharaoh will refuse to listen to you so that my wonders may be multiplied in Egypt. Moses and Aaron performed all these wonders before Pharaoh, but the Lord had hardened Pharaoh's heart, and he would not let the Israelites go out of his country. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron in Egypt, This month is to be for you the first month, the first month of your year. Tell the whole community of Israel that on the tenth day of this month, each man is to take a lamb for his family, one for each household. If any household is too small for a whole lamb, they must share one with their nearest neighbor, having taken into account the number of people there are. You are to determine the amount of lamb needed in accordance with what each person will eat. The animals you choose must be year-old males without defect, and you may take them from the sheep or the goats. Take care of them until the 14th day of the month when all the members of the community of Israel must slaughter them at twilight." Then they are to take some of the blood and put it on the sides and tops of the door frames of the houses where they eat the lambs. That same night they are to eat the meat roasted over fire along with bitter herbs and bread made without yeast. Do not eat the meat raw or boiled in water, but roast it over a fire. Don't ask me why. With the head, legs, and internal organs. Do not leave any of it till morning. If some of it is left till morning, you must burn it. This is how you are to eat it, with your cloak tucked into your belt, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand. Eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. On that same night, I will pass through Egypt and strike down every firstborn of both people and animals, and I will bring judgment on all of the gods of Egypt. I am the Lord. The blood will be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you. No destructive plague will touch you when I strike Egypt. Skip down to verse 28. We're not done yet. Verse 28. The Israelites did what the Lord commanded Moses and Aaron. At midnight, the Lord struck down all the firstborn in Egypt, from the firstborn of Pharaoh who sat on the throne, to the firstborn of the prisoner who was in the dungeon, and the firstborn of all the livestock as well. Pharaoh and all his officials and all the Egyptians got up during the night, and there was loud wailing in Egypt, for there was not a house without someone dead. During the night, Pharaoh summoned Moses and Aaron and said, Up! Leave my people, you and the Israelites, go, worship the Lord as you have requested. Take your flocks and your herds as you have said, and go, and also bless me. The Egyptians urged the people to hurry and leave the country, for otherwise, they said, we will all die. So the people took their dough before the yeast was added and carried it on their shoulders in kneading troughs wrapped in clothing. The Israelites did as Moses instructed and asked the Egyptians for articles of silver and gold and for clothing. The Lord made the Egyptians favorably disposed toward the people and they gave them what they asked for. So they plundered the Egyptians. After the 10th plague, the Israelites are finally released, liberated from slavery. But this 10th plague isn't like the others. 
For starters, in many of the previous plagues, uh, there was a natural distinction between the Israelites and the Egyptians. Not so here. No matter who you are, your firstborn will die unless you follow God's instructions. And the instructions for avoiding judgment seem odd. Kill a lamb, take its blood, and put its blood on the doorframe of your house. And the angel of the Lord will literally pass over your house. Judgment will pass over and leave you unharmed. And God tells his people, hey, this is to be for you the first month of your year. In other words, what's about to happen is absolutely central to who you are as a people. Try and imagine 400 years of being slaves and using the Egyptian calendar and being inundated by Egyptian propaganda and and being forced uh, to to worship Egyptian gods. And, And now... God's saying, hey, as of this moment, you will be a new people, a new nation, a free people. And this event, this Passover, is the beginning of your year. Everything else is going to revolve around this. And not only does God give them instructions for escaping judgment and attaining freedom in this moment, but he also gives them instructions for future celebrations of the Passover. Over. God says, hey, make this event central to who you are and, and make it the start of your year and celebrate it every year and here's how. And if we were uh, to keep reading through the book of Exodus, you'd see these detailed instructions that God's giving for future celebration. And so, for generations, uh, the Israelites celebrated this Passover festival. Uh, remembering the day when they were saved by the blood of the Lamb out of slavery to be God's chosen people. And just like we mentioned last week, uh, the exodus and the signs that accompanied it uh, are very real historical events that have real uh, meaning for Israel and for the biblical storyline. But like so much in the Old Testament, it was also pointing forward. It has to be held in tension with what we learn in the New Testament. And in fact, the Passover finds its true meaning in Jesus of Nazareth. The Exodus isn't simply about the blood of the Lamb that saved them in the past. It was also about the blood of the Lamb that would save them in the future. Centuries later, a prophet named John the Baptist was baptizing Israelites in the Jordan River and thousands of people were flocking to him. It was this spreading movement of repentance and they're all, the crowds are coming out to him in the desert and he's telling the crowds, hey, I'm not the Messiah. I'm just preparing the way for the Messiah. And when he first lays eyes on Jesus and God makes it clear, hey, this is the guy, this is the one you've been preparing the way for, his response is a striking one. He says, look, the Lamb of God 
who takes away the sin of the world. This is the one we've been waiting for. Interesting. The Lamb of God. Here to take away the sin, to wipe the slate clean, to save people from judgment. How will he go about doing that? How will he save us from judgment? Well, curiously, it has something to do with his blood being shed, sacrificed. And Jesus says, hey, if you come to me, you will be forgiven. And the judgment which is owing to this world will, in a sense, pass over you. And then Jesus said to them, Very truly I tell you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Which is a very odd thing to say. And in the moment that he says this, a bunch of his disciples begin to leave permanently. They're like, Jesus, we were really intrigued by all that kingdom of God stuff you were talking about. But this is weird. Like, I'm, I'm out. But what Jesus was referring to wasn't the literal eating of his flesh, but rather an illusion of what was to come. That his blood would be spilled for our forgiveness, and that those who received him as their sacrifice, who received him as their Passover lamb, who let him in to the deepest places in their hearts, would actually be free from judgment. You see, in every home in Israel, or in in Egypt, during the Exodus, there was either a dead son or a dead lamb in every home. And the Israelites had to trust in something that didn't make a ton of sense right up front. They had to literally trust in the blood of the lamb to save them. It wasn't my blood. It wasn't my self-sacrifice. It was the sacrifice of another on my behalf, in my place, that I'm now trusting to save me from judgment. Interesting. And so Jesus eventually comes to fulfill both the righteousness of God in judging sin and also the love of God in saving us from sin. Sin has to be judged or else God isn't just. If God cared nothing for sin and evil, if sin was not to be opposed or judged or brought to an end, then God wouldn't be God and we would not respect him. No, his holiness compels him to act in justice. He has to oppose evil. 
He has to act and bring it to an end. He has to judge it. But his love compels him to save the creatures which are the object of his affection. And so his justice and his love are both going to be equally displayed simultaneously in what happens at the cross. God literally steps in as a a divine substitute, as the Passover lamb, whose blood will be spilled so that we can be free. Like the Israelites, free from judgment, but also free from the tyranny and oppression of Satan, sin, and death. Both were physically accomplished through the original Passover lambs in Egypt. And and both are metaphysically accomplished through the ultimate Passover lamb, through Jesus himself, uh, through the lamb of which all others were were precursors and, and signposts. The author of Hebrews writes that the law can never, by the same sacrifices repeated endlessly year after year, make perfect those who draw near to worship. Otherwise, would they not have stopped being offered? For the worshipers would have been cleansed once for all and would no longer have felt guilty for their sin. But those sacrifices that you read about in the Old Testament are an annual reminder of sins. They're pointing forward. It is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats and Passover lambs to take away sins. Therefore, Christ came into the world. And as he first steps into the world, there are shepherds there to greet him. The same shepherds, many believe, that were responsible for watching over the Passover lambs in the fields of Bethlehem. And as he begins his ministry, John the Baptist affirms that this is in fact the Lamb of God come to do uh, away with sin and bring freedom into the world. And in the Exodus, we're told that the Passover lambs were to be uh, without blemish or defect. And Peter tells us that you were bought with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect. Jesus lived the perfect life that you and I could never live, and therefore he was the only one who was even qualified to become this sacrifice. And after living this beautiful life on earth, filled with God's presence and love and grace and beauty and and the inbreaking kingdom of God, he finally arrives at the climax. This moment of self-substitution on the cross where Jesus would take our place for our sin. The time had finally come for Jesus to give his life. 
And it happened of all times and places in Jerusalem on Passover weekend. What a fantastic coincidence. And so Jesus went to his death, we're told, like a lamb to the slaughter. No resistance, no fighting back. He says, I give my life over. This is my doing. And we're told that after being beaten savagely, he was nailed to the cross and lifted up as our sacrifice. And curiously, the author mentions that it was 9 a.m. when they nailed him to the cross, which wouldn't mean much except that 9 a.m. in the temple, the morning sacrifices were being made. And we're told that as he was struggling to breathe on the cross and his life was beginning to slip away, that some of the onlookers uh, dipped a sponge in wine and vinegar and they lifted it up to him on the stalk of a hyssop plant. Which doesn't mean anything to us, but in the Exodus, the Israelites were told to apply the blood of the lamb to their doorposts using the stalk of a hyssop plant. It was part of the sacrifice. And as Jesus breathed his last and gave up his spirit, we're told that it was 3 p.m. in the afternoon, which wouldn't mean much except that that's when the evening sacrifice was taking place in the temple and a lamb was being slain. And after he died, the Romans came by to break the legs of those being crucified. Because if their legs were broken, they would sink down lower, they couldn't breathe. It, it sped up the process of death. But they were surprised when they came to Jesus to find that he was already dead. And so instead of breaking his legs, they took a spear and they thrust it into his side. And blood and water came pouring out. Which wouldn't be a big deal, except that in the Exodus, they were told that as they slaughtered the lamb, the Passover lamb, that not one of its bones were to be broken. And when John later sees a vision of heaven in the book of Revelation, he says, I saw a lamb looking as if it had been slain, standing at the center of the throne. That's Jesus. From the second book of the Bible to the very last book of the Bible, there is this theme. Jesus is the Passover lamb. And if we don't understand what happened in, in the original Exodus, in the original Passover, then a lot of what follows is only going to be more confusing. In the Exodus, the enslaved Israelites trusted in the blood of the lamb 
with their very lives. Another stood in their place and tasted death on their behalf. And by putting their faith and trust in it, by coming under the blood of the Lamb, they were saved from judgment and released from slavery in the same act. And they were free to come out from under their slavery and and to go out and meet with God and to enter into covenant relationship with God and, and to join with God in his mission to rescue and redeem and restore the world. That's the exodus. And that's you and me. We trust in the blood of Jesus, in his sacrifice on the cross in our place, both in satisfying the justice of God and allowing judgment to pass over us, but also in expressing the love of God and giving us eternal life. Somehow we are curiously freed from judgment and released from slavery through the exact same act. And, and this blood which we come under is the blood of a new covenant, which is better than the old covenant. And so we apply the blood of the new covenant not to doorposts, but to our own hearts, a trusting in its power. And as we do that, everything changes. We are forgiven. We are released. We are set free. We are made into new creations. The old is done away with. You are completely reconciled to God. We have a means of forgiveness and cleansing, which allows us to stand before the Father as Jesus did. And to be honest, In my skepticism, sometimes that's really hard to believe. And there are days when when the skepticism of the culture uh, leaks its way into my thinking. It, It leaks its way into my faith. And I think, man, if I was an Israelite in the in the Exodus, I'd probably be scoffing. Like, really, Moses? Like, that's, your pl- that's what you want us to do? Like, take a lamb and do what? And just, the blood, what? Okay, if you say so. And when it comes to the here and now, I still have my moments of skepticism. And there are days when this whole salvation thing It's just kind of hard for me to grasp. And I know it's true. It's worked. It's working. And yet, there are days when when I can't stop thinking about my own sin, past and present. And that accusing voice is there, whispering over my shoulder You're dirty. You're broken. You're not good enough. You shouldn't even be a disciple, let alone a pastor. Are you kidding me? You need to try harder. 
be better, be perfect. You've been at it over a decade. Are you making any progress? And on the days that I succumb to that voice and follow its logic, I end up feeling really crappy. And I end up straining to try harder and be better and eliminate every last little bit of sin from my life. And those days are exhausting. And those days are discouraging and unfruitful. And it doesn't actually work. And by the end, I can feel so drained. And I just kind of have that numb, empty feeling. And I think, what, what's with this funk? What's wrong with me? I, maybe I just need to pray more. Maybe I just need to read my Bible more. Maybe I just need to set better goals. Maybe I just need to, to try harder and eliminate those, those pesky little sins that, that don't want to go away. I can try harder. I will try harder. And yet, those days end and there's still a cloud of condemnation hanging over my head that simply won't go away. I still don't feel at the end of those days that I've earned any special favor in God's eyes. I don't feel deserving of God's pleasure. And on those days, it's actually really hard to pray. And it's really hard to read the, the scriptures. It feels like a chore. And, and life starts to get colored by this sort of despondency and despair and frustration. And I can feel so drained. I, I'm stuck on those days. But then... I open the book of Exodus and I'm reminded of the truth. It wasn't about them. It was about the Lamb. It wasn't about the sin of the Israelites or their lack of sin that made the difference. It was their trust. It was where they placed their faith. They placed their faith in the blood of the lamb. And it didn't actually matter how dirty they were because it had nothing to do with them. They were a totally broken and dysfunctional people. Keep on reading in the book of Exodus. It's insane how dysfunctional this group of people is. But they were still saved, they were still liberated. Why? They trusted in the Lamb. You see, when you would go to the temple in Jerusalem to make a sin offering and seek forgiveness from God, and, and you finally made it to Jerusalem and, and, you, and, and you purchased your, your sacrifice and, and you made it to the temple and you waited in, in the line and you finally made it to the front of the temple and, and the moment was there, you're up at the altar you're ready to make the sacrifice. You're standing before the priest. The priest wasn't looking at you. Where was the priest looking? 
at the lamb, at the sacrifice that you had brought. In that moment, all eyes were on the lamb. If the lamb that you brought was unblemished, you were good. Your sacrifice was accepted. You were forgiven. They didn't care about you. It didn't matter if if your clothes were dirty or stained or disheveled. No. Nobody was looking at you. You're not self-conscious in that moment. When, When you go up to make the sacrifice, when you go up to be forgiven. You're looking at the priest and and you're looking at the sacrifice. And that's it. If it was perfect and accepted, then you were accepted. End of story. And all of this prepares us for the grace of God in Jesus. In him, our sin is taken away and his righteousness is actually shared with us. His perfect and spotless righteousness is credited to your account. Because he was our sacrifice, you are completely accepted. You are in God's pleasure. And you don't have to carry around burdens of unworthiness and inadequacy. And you don't have to carry around unnecessary guilt and anxiety. And and you don't have to fear that that you're suddenly going to be challenged and accused and dragged out of this place of privilege. As if God is all of a sudden going to figure out who you really are and what you actually did. Because it's not about you. It's about the lamb. It's about the sacrifice that you bring. You have a perfect sacrifice that was made once and for all. And his righteousness doesn't change. There is literally nothing you can do to add to the righteousness of Jesus. Nothing. And there's literally nothing you can do to detract from the righteousness of Jesus. You can clench your fist and try harder and do better your whole life long and you will not add an ounce of righteousness to what Christ has done. And You can sin and stumble around your whole life long and it detracts nothing from his perfection. You are totally and completely secure. You trust in the blood of the Lamb and as a result, judgment passes over you. You are saved from judgment. You are freed from slavery and completely secure in his love. 
Nothing you do, good or bad, changes that. You have a perfect sacrifice for all eternity because Jesus is your Passover lamb. This is our exodus. You're saved from judgment, given the righteousness of God, and released from the power of Satan, sin, and death. You're given the very righteousness of Christ. And just like the Israelites, you are now freed up to come out from under slavery, to enter covenant relationship with God, and to join his mission in rescuing, redeeming, and restoring this broken world. Let's pray. Jesus, we uh, recognize as we come into this place that we actually have all sorts of reasons to avoid sin. We actually have all sorts of reasons to not run back to slavery. We actually have all sorts of reasons to, to, to not listen to Satan anymore. But our righteousness and our standing before you is not one of those reasons. And so God, before we think through anything else, before we process anything else, as a community, would you help us this morning, even as we continue in worship, to really process with our heads and our hearts what it means for you to be our Passover lamb. What it means that all eyes are on you, Jesus, and because you are perfect, we are accepted. God, we stand on that truth. We've placed our, our faith in that. We've placed our trust in the blood of the lamb that was slain. And yet it's so beautiful. It's so counterintuitive. There can be days when it's so hard for us to grasp. And yet when we do, Jesus, your, your freedom that's already been won, your freedom takes root. And, and it begins to sink in and it begins to work its way through every aspect of our being, through all of life. And so we look to you now, Jesus, really simply as our Passover lamb, as the one who is currently on the throne and who will, uh, as the lamb who is slain, and the one who will one day bring all of the cosmos under your rule and your reign. Thank you, Jesus, for giving of yourself, uh, for opening up the way, for satisfying the justice of God and displaying the love of God which such, with such stunning effectiveness that, that the nations of the world are now drawn to you. We turn our eyes to you now. In Jesus' name, amen.